On April 17, 2018, John Suarez, program officer at the Center for a Free Cuba in Washington, D.C., delivered a lecture entitled Communism in Cuba, Its International Impact, the Democratic Resistance, and U.S.-Cuba Policy. The lecture was delivered as part of the 2018 Acton Lecture Series at the Mark Murray Auditorium in the Acton Building in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here now with his address is John Suarez. Cuba is complicated, and sadly, in the media, they tend to oversimplify all too often. This week is an important week um, because there's going to be a change of names in the presidency of Cuba. The press tries to uh, spin it that it's some sort of profound change, but it's not. Um, Cuba has had a president that was not a Castro for many years, from 1959 to 1976, uh, you had, for a few months, a gentleman by the name of Manuel Urutia, who was a Democrat. He lasted about four months. And then you had an individual by the name of Osvaldo Dorticos, who was a member of the Communist Party, who was there from 1959 to 1976. And now we're going to have a non-Castro person once again, who will be answering to Raul Castro, who will remain head of the Cuban Communist Party, most likely until his death. And there's a new generation of Castros, uh, Alejandro Castro, who's a colonel in the Cuban Intelligence Service, who was meeting with President Obama and Raul Castro over the last couple of years when they had the normalization efforts between the United States and Cuba. But I say it's a decisive moment, and I would say that the Western Hemisphere is at a crossroads, but not for the reasons that there's a new uh, name under president in Cuba. Uh, Raul Castro supposedly will hand over the title on April 19, 2018 to give the impression that there's change underway in Cuba. This is not the case. Diaz-Canel, like Osvaldo Dorticos, who was president, will be a puppet controlled by the Castros. And I'm going to refer now to a Cuban opposition leader who's no longer with us, Osvaldo Payas Sardinas. On March 30th of 2012, he warned that there was a fake change underway in Cuba. And this is the culmination of this process of fake change. Some believe that this warning that he made back in March 30th, 2012, led to his death on July 22nd, 2012. And I think it's important to repeat his words, so I'm going to quote him. He was the head of the Christian Liberation Movement, a movement that was founded on September 8th of 1988, which was, happened to be also the feast day for the Virgin of Charity in Cuba, these were a group of lay Catholics in Havana, Cuba, and they sought uh, a nonviolent democratic change in Cuba. One of their big projects, some of you may have heard of, is called the Varela Project, named after a Cuban Catholic priest from the 19th century, credited with the first formulation of a Cuban national identity, Father Felix Varela. This Christian liberation movement, founded by Osvaldo Paya and other Catholic laymen, set up a petition drive called the Varela Project where over 25,000 Cubans wound up signing that petition calling for democratic changes in Cuba within the socialist legality of the current Cuban constitution at that time, which was in 19... They started in 99 and finished around 2002, 2003. So let me repeat what Osvaldo had to say. Our movement denounces the regime's attempt to impose a fraudulent change, i.e., change without rights and the inclusion of many interests in this change that sidesteps democracy 
and the sovereignty of the people of Cuba. The attempt to link the diaspora in this fraudulent change is to make victims participate in their own oppression. The diaspora does not have to assume attitudes and policies in entering the social activity of the island. The diaspora is a diaspora because they are Cuban exiles to which the regime denied rights as it denies them to all Cubans. It is not in that part of oppression without rights and transparency that the diaspora has to be inserted. That would be part of fraudulent change. That's what's been taking place in Cuba. That's what happened during the Obama administration between 2008 and 2016. There was an attempt to accommodate and legitimize the Castro regime before the international community. And the effects were dire. One of the things that has been impacted, and the administration didn't see that linkage, is Venezuela. One of the great uh, successes of the regime was being able to install a Marxist regime in Venezuela with Hugo Chavez. There's going to be a presidential election in Venezuela on May 20th, 2018. And I say election like a Cuban election. Um, the opposition has already boycotted it because it's already been predetermined who the victor is going to be, and it's going to be the dictatorship of Nicolas Maduro. However, there is one election coming up that is a game-changer in the region and that concerns me very much, and that's going to be on July 1st, 2018, in Mexico. And currently, the front-runner is a man by the name of Andres Manuel López Obrador, who is an admirer of Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. And he's the current front runner. I want to underline that. He claims now to be a Democrat who will, respect, who will respect democratic norms, but this was the same line used by Hugo Chavez during the presidential election in Venezuela in 1998. After repeatedly, and others have tried, to go with a more radical line and they don't win at the ballot box. And then they figure out, well, we've got to play being a Democrat. Hugo Chavez in 98, in fact, called Fidel Castro a dictator and promised to respect democratic norms and to leave office. Obviously, he did not do that. And that goes back to the DNA of the Castro regime. And to understand what's taking place now in Latin America, it's, it's important to look back at how communism arrived in Cuba. Communism took power in Cuba through deceit and intrigue in 1959. Um, if you could please play the video, you can actually hear Fidel Castro saying that he's not a communist. He was promising democratic reforms. He, did nev he never told the Cuban people that he was planning on installing a Marxist-Leninist dictatorship in Cuba. Hopefully the audio... First of all, we are communists. And of course, I have said very clear that we are not communists. Very clear. Porque hay que decir que por encima de todos, de todos, somos marxistas, leninistas. Okay. Um, Uber Matos, who was a commandant in Castro's revolution and anti-communist, seeing that the ranks were being filled by communists in the early days of the revolution, tried to resign his post, sent uh, a number of letters of resignation to Fidel Castro, which he rejected until he finally accepted one, publicly denounced Uber Matos as a traitor for accusing him of being a communist, and then put him on trial and sentenced him to over 20 years in prison. A year 
and a half later when Fidel Castro announced that he was, in fact, a Marxist-Leninist communist, Ubramatos was not released. He served out his sentence. Cuba had problems in the 1950s. Obviously, there was a dictatorship imposed by Fulgencio Batista in 1952 um, that was unwanted. There had been a democratic, uh, flawed system beforehand. But people were profoundly disturbed by the arrival of a military dictatorship in Cuba. So Fidel Castro was, retur- was promising to restore the old democratic order. And he was so convincing in pitching that he actually, his movement lobbied Washington, D.C. to impose an arms embargo on Fulgencio Batista, which in fact it did in 1958. And that was one of the reasons that Batista fled power, because he was not being supported by the United States, and the United States was actually showing its displeasure in concrete ways. Now, when the arrival, with the arrival of the Castro regime in 1959, promising democracy, the restoration of the rule of law, freedom of expression, at the same time that he was making those speeches, simultaneously, he was threatening the owners of newspapers that if they printed anything negative, that they would suffer dire consequences. And to underline that, they started mass executions, and they broadcast them. And I believe we have one of those executions right here to show you. The show trial beforehand, and then to the wall with a firing squad. There's the impartial judge. One of the defendants. Now, in the Cuban legal system, the defense attorney is also representing the government. So oftentimes, they will get up and apologize for the guilt of their client and beg the mercy of the Revolutionary Court. Another of the defendants. The Revolutionary Judges. and being taken out to be executed. It was a very speedy process. Thousands of people were executed at the beginning of the revolution. These executions were broadcast and shown to the Cuban population to terrorize them and as a measure of implementing control. Now, Fidel Castro continued to deny that he was a communist as he was erecting the totalitarian communist structure. And we've seen that pattern repeated in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and elsewhere. The United States finally, in January of 1961, breaks off diplomatic relations with Cuba. Uh, The Castro regime had already outlawed all newspapers the previous year. But by December of... uh, By 1961, January 3rd, diplomatic relations are cut off. April of 1961, the Bay of Pigs takes place, where the CIA backs a group of Cuban exiles to invade Cuba and try to overthrow the regime. It's a disaster that winds up, rather than removing the Castro regime, consolidating the dictatorship. And Fidel Castro, after that, is where he formally proclaims himself a Marxist-Leninist. But it is interesting to note the reason why he did not do so before. And there are moments where Castro actually speaks openly. And one of those moments was December 2nd of 1961, where he said, 
If we had paused to tell the people that we were Marxist-Leninist while we were on Pico Turquino and not yet strong, it is possible that we would never have been able to descend to the plains. Communism and the Communist Party were deeply unpopular in Cuba because of its links to the previous two dictatorships. Uh, there were communists that wound up in Castro's regime that had been in Fulgencio Batista's regime, and the communists had also supported uh, the previous military dictator from the 1920s, Gerardo Machado. So they were a deeply unpopular party. And obviously when Fidel Castro started consolidating this communist regime, dissidents immediately emerged, like Ubermatos that I mentioned, but others who had fought along his side against the Batista regime returned to the hills, the hills of the Escambray, and began a guerrilla struggle that lasted from 1960 to 1966 that was so vigorous that 400 Soviet counterinsurgency experts had to assist in Cuba and train the Cuban troops to combat them. And it took them six years to crush that movement. And it involved uh, relocating entire populations from that region and setting them up in internment camps that became villages called Sandino I, Sandino II, and another part of the island. And this is all to say, and, and we've seen this also in other places later on when the Cubans learned these skills in Africa and other parts of Latin America and Nicaragua. But as I, as I was saying, you had this resistance. It lasted until 1966. It's finally crushed. The regime has consolidated itself. A decade later, a new movement emerges. Um, we're talking disaffected diplomats, professors, uh, many of them from the center left. And they found, on January 28, 1976, a movement called the Cuban Committee for Human Rights. Uh, one of the founders is Ricardo Bofil. Uh, university professor and others, Marta Freide, who had been a diplomat. And they found it at her home, and they begin to document human rights abuses inside of Cuba and send those reports to embassies and make their way to NGOs like Amnesty International, America's Watch that would later become Human Rights Watch, and to the UN Human Rights Commission. These groups began as a small grouping in Havana, but over the years began to grow. One of the elements that caused an explosion in that growth occurs in the 1980s. During the Reagan administration, something called Radio Martí is started that begins broadcasting into Cuba, much like Radio Free Europe, uncensored news. And they begin also to get the voices of some of these dissidents and exiles broadcast into the island to become aware of each other's existence. So there's an explosion of growth of opposition voices. And there's a shift, and we see it, as I mentioned before, with the case of the Christian Liberation Movement in 1988, from just documenting human rights abuses to trying to mobilize the population. They start distributing copies of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They also start focusing on the socialist legality of the Cuban Constitution and seeking ways to reach out to everyday Cubans and get them involved in trying to reclaim their sovereignty. And of course, the Varela Project, in which over 25,000 Cubans participated, was a key element of that. The response of the regime was to disregard its own laws in 2002 
set up its own petition drive declaring that the Constitution is unchangeable, that its communist nature cannot be amended. And then in March of 2003, they engage in a massive crackdown of the organizers of that petition drive, independent journalists and human rights defenders, sentencing 75 of them, anywhere from 15 to 28 years in prison. All of them are declared prisoners of conscience by Amnesty International. And the regime has pronounced that the opposition movement is dead in Cuba. They were mistaken. The wives, sisters, daughters, and mothers of these activists who were jailed take to the streets and form their own movement called the Ladies in White. And they start going to church on Sunday, Santa Rita, in Havana. And then it spreads out to other uh, communities across Cuba and other provinces. And they attend Mass, and then after Mass, they go out and march in the streets with white gladiola, glad, gladiola flowers um, in silent protests, sometimes loud protests, calling for the freedom of their loved ones. And they continue to do that for years, despite the regime sending mobs to beat them up, some of them suffering broken bones, threats against other family members. They maintain that presence in the streets. And by 2010, their loved ones are released. Many of them forced into exile, but some remain behind and continue in their activism to this present day. I'd like to show you two clips. One, uh, Osvaldo Payar Sardinas, the head of the Christian Liberation Movement. That's the article that they used to be able to go out and gather signatures and knock on people's doors, Article 88G. And... Initially, they got 11,020 signatures in May of 2002. Um, if you can hit play. Jimmy Carter went there shortly afterwards, and when he was at the University of Havana with Fidel Castro and Raul Castro there in the audience, he mentioned the Varela Project, and it was actually heard across the country. Estamos ante un momento histórico en que se evidencia definitivamente que el problema de Cuba tiene en su base una contradicción esencial entre el régimen y el pueblo. El gobierno cubano tiene transmisores con la misma frecuencia enviando este ruido. Todo es filtrado, todo es censurado y dirigido según la propaganda oficial. 
El gobierno decide si una persona puede estudiar o no, si una persona puede tener un teléfono o no, si una persona puede viajar o no, si una persona puede trabajar, si una persona puede construir, si una persona puede tener un auto, decide todo porque la persona no tiene derecho. And now I'm going to pass you to get to listen to Laura Poyan, who was the founder of the Ladies in White. And as I mentioned, Osvaldo Payasadinos was killed in 2012 in an extrajudicial killing. No ha habido mejoría. La represión continúa. Ellos sencillamente lo que quieren es dar una imagen al mundo de que las cosas están cambiando. Pero en realidad, mientras no se cambien las leyes, que son las que llevan a los disidentes a la prisión, no podemos hablar de verdaderos cambios. Porque sí, hoy, hoy liberan o destierran a 50, 80 presos, pero al estar esas leyes, mañana o el mes que viene, pueden volver a llenar las cárceles. Eso es lo que tenemos que lograr, que se cambien las leyes para que el ciudadano pueda expresarse libremente sin tener el temor de que sean encarcelados, que cese la represión, que se respeten los derechos humanos. El gobierno cubano nunca ha querido conversar, dialogar con la oposición y por eso ha utilizado en este caso a la Iglesia Católica como intermediario. Podemos decir que aquí en Cuba no existe mejor mediador que la Iglesia Católica, porque en otros países pueden utilizar a organizaciones no gubernamentales. En Cuba eso no existe. ¿A quién utilizarían entonces? ¿A la juventud? ¿Al partido? ¿A la federación? al CDR, en fin, todas las organizaciones que hay en Cuba responden al gobierno. Así que es muy acertada la mediación de la iglesia. Bueno. And lamentably, Lara Poyan was killed in 2011, or she died under suspicious circumstances under a brief, after a brief illness while under the custody of state security at a hospital in Havana. So people that are very clear and could actually oversee a democratic transition in Cuba during the uh, Obama years, um, had a very rough time of it. I'd like to shift now to Castroism's international impact. Cuba has certain objectives that are sort of hard-baked into the, into the regime's long-term objectives. One, maintain Cuba's independence from and opposition to the United States. Two, actively support revolutionary movements in Latin America. Three, promote national liberation and socialism wherever they can. Four, acquire influence and supportive allies among third world states. And five, securing maximum economic, military, and political commitments from Russia and China. Now, they may, one of their objectives obviously is to have uh, economic sanctions lifted from the United States, but it's not their primary objectives. I would argue that these are their five primary objectives and they've been long-term objectives. You find it in Jaime Sushliki's book, From Columbus to Castro, written many years ago, and I would say would still hold up today. So when we're talking about Castroism's international impact, from the beginning, in 1959, the vision was to turn the Andes of South America into the Sierra Maestra, where the 
communist guerrillas had been fighting in Cuba to take over. That's what they wanted to do with South America. The Castro regime's interest in Venezuela began from the earliest days of the regime. Venezuelans understood this at the time when Ernesto Che Guevara was giving unsolicited advice to Romulo Betancourt, the democratically elected president of Venezuela, telling him to use the firing squads against his rightist opponents. In 1963, Congressional Quarterly reported on how riots led by communist and other pro-Castro elements in Caracas in autumn of 1960 took the lives of 13 persons and injured 100. Venezuela recalled its ambassador to Cuba, and Betancourt ordered out, of, out the army to end the rioting, which he termed an attempt to, quote, install a regime similar to that in Cuba. Cuban communist leader Blas Roca told the Havana rally in January 23, 1963, that when the communists gain full control and make themselves owners, quote, make themselves owners of the great riches in oil, aluminum, and everything their earth imprisons, then all of America shall burn, unquote. A cache of three tons of weapons was found on a Venezuelan beach in November of 1963 that was to be used to disrupt the democratic elections there. Fidel Castro would continue to agitate for revolution in Venezuela. A well-documented incident occurred on May 8th of 1967 and was reported by Francisco Toro to the Washington Post, where he described how, quote, two small boats carrying a dozen heavily armed fighters made landfall near Manchurukuto, a tiny fishing village 100 miles east of the Venezuelan capital, Caracas. Their plan was to march inland and recruit Venezuelan peasants to the cause of socialist revolution. An all-night gun battle with the Venezuelan military led to nine guerrillas dead, two captured, and one that had escaped. This led to American government seeking to isolate Cuba in order to protect themselves from armed expeditions. Do, using this uh, theory of guerrilla struggle, which helped the way that Fidel Castro arrived in power failed throughout Latin America thanks to a united American front uh, with the United States and Latin American countries. But it did have one success, and that was in Nicaragua with the rise of the Sandinistas. And that was a guerrilla movement backed by Cuba, funded, uh, aided with weapons, and um, they're still there. The uh, Cubans not, didn't only operate in Latin America. They also were operating in Africa. And people hear often about Cuban troops in Angola. But one of the chapters that's not often talked about, that many of us may be familiar with, the outcome is Ethiopia. In the 1980s, there was a huge famine that took place where hundreds of thousands of people died of hunger. That was a manufactured famine to consolidate communist control in Ethiopia. And there were 17,000 troops on the ground there assisting. Fidel Castro and Raul Castro traveled to Ethiopia and met with the warlord Mengistu to review the troops and to congratulate him on his great efforts. And I believe we have some footage of his arrival in 1978. And Mr. Castro had wonderful things to say about Mr. Mengistu to his good friend Eric Honecker, the dictator of East Germany. And this is Castro arriving in Ethiopia and being embraced by Mr. Mengistu. And to give you an idea of what Cuban troops were doing in Ethiopia, they were directly going against the population's means of survival. They were poisoning and bombing water holes and machine gunning herds of cattle. That's what the Cuban troops were doing in Ethiopia. 
So let me conclude and go to questions and answers. But I, I want to point out the Obama administration, with its effort to normalize relations, we saw in 2015 Cuba invited to the Summit of the Americas for the first time. What they brought to the Summit of the Americas were shock troops that in, created an environment where acts of repudiation were carried out, where peaceful activists were physically assaulted in a public park while trying to lay flowers at a statue of Jose Martí. And President Obama sat down with Raul Castro and said everything was fine. Just last week, there was another summit of the Americas. They brought back the shock troops. They even identified one of the thugs who had been caught last year uh, knocking down a peaceful demonstrator who was carrying an American flag in Havana. And the pattern repeated itself. The difference was that this time, Vice President Pence didn't meet with Raul Castro. He met with Rosa Maria Payá, Osvaldo Payá's daughter, and demonstrated his solidarity with the Cuban people. Equally as important, Peru's Minister of Justice and Human Rights, an individual by the name of Salvador Hedesi, recognized at this gathering in 2018 that Cuba is the mother of all evils in Latin America. Latin America is at a dangerous crossroads, and recognizing the damage done by the Castro regime in the hemisphere and its continuing threat is an important step that other countries need to understand before it is too late. Thank you very much. We have 25 minutes for Q&A. If you raise your hand, Andrew or I will bring you the mic. I wanted to ask, with uh, Venezuela broke and uh, Russia's budget restrained by oil prices, where is Cuba getting the money to continue? <laughs> well, Venezuela is broke because Cuba has been sucking it dry. And it still is, one. Two, they also get support from China. They also have very good relations with Iran, Syria, Vietnam. Uh, during the Obama administration in 2013, uh, Cuba got caught smuggling tons of heavy weapons to North Korea, including MiGs, surface-to-air missiles, ballistic missile technology, in violation of international sanctions. They were also caught in 2015 with the shipment of weapons to Colombia and have good relationships with the guerrillas there. So they, they're not driven by economic interest. They have an agenda, which I think I outlined, of what they want to do, and they put all their resources there. At the same time, one of the reasons they were engaged in the normalization drive with the United States was to try to get subsidies from the U.S. The U.S. and Cuba have been engaging in trade since 2000, but it's been on a cash-and-carry basis. They want to... And also, because of that drive of normalization, they did get more credits from Western Europe because they thought that with the United States normalizing relations, their already existing relationship with Cuba, to maintain it, they needed to provide more generous credits. So that was a way for Cuba to get hard currency. And, of course, that hard currency is going to its troops and its intelligence apparatus in Venezuela. And I would dare say to its embassy in Mexico City that's working to see if they can have a Chavez number two in Mexico. And if Mexico 
falls into their orbit, there'll be a lot more money for Cuba. Raul dies? I think that Fidel Castro was somebody that didn't build institutions, but Raul Castro has been working on that. And he's also been seeking to have his son, Alejandro Castro, and his daughter, Mariela Castro, in key positions. The question will be, once he dies, if they have the will to continue forward. All indications are, based on the writings of Alejandro Castro and the example of Mariela Castro, is that they do. Um, now, the population that's been dealing with the last name Castro for 59 years is a bit tired of the, of the name. And the question would be, is the populace of Cuba willing to go along with that? Is there an expiration date on their tolerance of that Castro last name? But that also depends on the international community. If the international community is propping up the Castros and distancing themselves from the Democrats, as occurred during the Obama administration, that would make the likelihood of the perpetuation of that regime greater. Uh, I would um, respectfully ask if you could uh, enlighten us a little bit on the Canadian government's relationship with Cuba. Well, Canada has had, I can't say a good relationship with what, what's happened over the last couple of days. I don't know if you're aware of uh, the situation, well, of U.S. diplomats, but also Canadian diplomats, which has been in the news. Um, since November of 2016, a number of diplomats in Havana um, as far as we know, at the Canadian embassy and at the U.S. embassy, have suffered mysterious attacks. Some of them called them sonic attacks, where they had brain damage uh, akin to concussions. And it's not clear yet the mechanism for that. But uh, the U.S. pulled out most of their diplomats. I think there are about 10 diplomats remaining there. They expelled a number of Cuban diplomats from the embassy in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, yesterday I saw on the news that the Canadians are pulling out the families of diplomats because they've also suffered these attacks, and apparently uh, it's more serious than initially thought, and that's why they're taking that step. Uh, many of the apologists of the Cuban regime were very critical of the United States for pulling their diplomats out late last year, but it seems that it was a prudent move considering that Canada is now doing the same. Canada's had normal relations with Cuba, trades with Cuba, there's a huge number of Canadian tourists going to Cuba, although I would also recommend following the news because all too often you hear horror stories of uh, Canadians who go to Cuba on vacation and have a very unpleasant experience, uh, encountering the real nature of the Cuban healthcare system, and some of them do not survive it. Yes, sir. Right, right here, right here, John. Okay. Could you say more about congressional legislation in the 1980s and maybe 1990s to establish better relations, provided Cuba would become more democratic? Of course. Well, I think first off, I, I think it's important, if we're talking about the 1980s, to look at the legislation that made Radio Marti possible. And that was done during the Reagan administration and was a way of the United States reaching out to the Cuban people directly and breaking the information blockade and providing uncensored news. And that was key towards Cubans having access to something that wasn't state propaganda. And it's still very much appreciated in the island and it's very widely listened to. And the video that you saw with 
Osvaldo Payao with that interference is the Cuban regime trying to block the signal of Radio Marti and other international signals entering the country. They also don't allow, they don't sell shortwave radios in Cuba because they don't want people having access to outside information. Um, in the 90s, and I think it's important to touch on this, this idea of normalizing relations didn't begin with President Obama. There were two um, initiatives prior to that. One was the Carter administration in 1977 that opened up an interest section, which was a de facto embassy, um, and lifted the, tra- the travel ban, um, and also started negotiating directly between U.S. and Cuban officials. The end result of that was um, the Cubans getting a higher profile internationally, projecting themselves more into Latin America, and was one of the factors contributing to the Sandinista triumph in Nicaragua. Why? The Carter administration froze support for the Somoza regime in Nicaragua at the same time that the Cubans felt emboldened. The Russians sent a brigade into Cuba during that time, and nothing good came out of it. Uh, Cuba was able to export a good part of their populace, their disaffected populace, with the Mariel boat lift in 1980, which was a contributing factor to Carter's defeat that year. Ronald Reagan comes in, rolls back much of what Carter did, with the exception of maintaining the interest section. But then we see a return to that Carter approach during the Clinton administration, where they actually have joint military exercises, and they begin an outreach. But as during the Carter years, the regime becomes emboldened. The human rights situation deteriorates in Cuba. Uh, Massacres are taking place of people trying to leave. Uh, The most notorious being the Teresa de Marzo tugboat massacre, where 37 men, women, and children were killed six miles off the Cuban coastline and sunk trying to flee to the U.S. Um, February 24th of 96, there was a group called Brothers to the Rescue that had been founded in 91 with the objective of rescuing, of rescuing uh, Cuban rafters. They would spot them from the air, drop water, food, contact the Coast Guard to pick them up. February 24th of 1996, in international airspace, they were shot down by Cuban MiGs, killing four U.S. citizens. That prompted the passage of the Helms-Burden Law, which set up a number of preconditions for the U.S. to normalize relations with Cuba and to lift sanctions, which include legalizing multi-party elections in Cuba, recognizing a free press, and doing the, the basic things to have a democratic transition. That gets signed into law by Bill Clinton in an election year uh, following the shootdown of the Brothers to the Rescue planes. His other options were do nothing or a military invasion in response to the murder of American citizens over international airspace. I hope that answered your question. Uh, when I asked the question, I wasn't thinking about Anyway, it was mostly the uh, 20 or 30 years of Canadian uh, support for the Cuban lifestyle, quote-unquote, and how that uh, is related to the issue of it that you brought up about Mexico. And we hear everybody talking about NAFTA as if it's an immigration issue and maybe a jobs issue. I, I submit, and I'd like your comment, that it's a sovereignty issue for the United States because you have Russia, China, and Iran involved 90 miles from our border. 
I think it's both. Um, I think that Canada, the problem is not just Canada, also a good part of Europe also has also been, and Mexico also has been very close with Cuba. Um, so, and that's something that, unfortunately, Canada was always that way. You had a Trudeau senior that was very close, and Trudeau junior, unfortunately, is continuing the family tradition of coddling uh, dictators in Cuba. Um, but in the case of, and Mexico also was a country that made an arrangement with Cuba, which was, we'll back you internationally, but you help us with our radicals domestically back then. And the Cuban government would have Mexican communists who would go to Cuba to train, and they would photograph them and provide all their information to the Mexican security services. Um, I think that arrangement was broken with the arrival of Vicente Fox in 2000 in Mexico. And again, that's why I reiterate my concern with what's going on there with the election of López Obrador, that if he wins, I think that'll also be a game changer for the NAFTA relationship. I don't think he'll want to remain in NAFTA, um, but I also think that the efforts of the Cuban regime with, an al with a strong ally in the Mexican presidency is something that the U.S. should be very concerned about. Right here, John. Uh, so you see the economic and political uh, downslope in Cuba led to a lot of exiles and people, a lot of boats showing up on our shoreline. Uh, the parallels with Mexico seem to be somewhat similar, where there are uh, economic turmoil and mm -hmm. basically mob-driven uh, oppression uh, has really triggered a lot of exodus from Mexico across our border. How do you see the connection there with the political ties with Cuba, or are those just natural outcomes of the social economic conditions? Well, I think in the case of the difference between the Mexican immigration and the Cuban immigration until recently has been that the Mexican was able to get into the United States but return home. <clears throat> in the case of Cuba until 2013, and still to a certain degree today, for the Cuban, it's a one-way <clears throat> trip. Excuse me, I get some water here. And they didn't have that option of returning home. So they became, in effect, exiles. The Mexican government is very supportive of the Mexican migrants. Um, the Mexican embassy is a resource for them, uh, provides them with assistance, and uh, provides them with advice how to avoid problems with uh, immigration in the United States. The Cuban embassy is not such a friendly... Uh, uh, place for Cubans living abroad. It's quite the opposite. So there, there's a very different dynamic at play there. Uh, the Mexicans are not massacring their own people for trying to leave the country. The Cuban Coast Guard has a long history of doing that, of dropping sandbags on boat people, machine gunning swimmers that would try to get over to the U.S. side of the, where the Guantanamo Naval Base is, which has been documented and removing the bodies with gaff hooks that's normally used for sport fishing. The Tres de Marzo tugboat massacre, where they sank this tugboat with uh, 37 people, mainly families. Um, we only know about it because there was a Greek trawler going by that witnessed the massacre and caused it to stop, and there were some survivors to tell their story. We don't know how many other cases like that had no survivors. And that's a very different dynamic than what goes on with the Mexican government and their migrants versus what goes on with Cuba. 
With respect to communication to the outside world, um, I, I know some communication does get in and some does get out. Most recently, I received, um, of all things, a, a Facebook <clears throat> book friend request from two of my cousins. Mm-hmm. And I've been reluctant to answer because of potential repercussions. I don't know where that stands in Cuba. I'm sure it's monitored somehow. Uh, but um, wh- wh- where do you see that today, and where is it going? Well, Cuba's, um, with regards to Internet, it seems that they're shifting their strategy a bit. For many years, their strategy was no access. So nobody had access to the Internet. Um, for a short time in the late, mid to late 2000s, Raul Castro outlawed uh, purchasing a computer, um, which I find funny. In the media accounts today, they're saying, well, he now liberalized because he made computer ownership legal in Cuba. But what they leave out is that computer ownership was legal to about 2005, 2006 when he outlawed it. So they're, they're always looking at the means of preserving power. They've set up a relationship now with Google. Google has placed servers in Cuba. Google has been collaborating with the uh, Cuban intelligence service like they did in China. So I'm pretty sure that now Cubans will have access. But when it comes to something like Facebook or other social media, I think, and as we're seeing here in the U.S. now with the scandal over data, um, that's already been seen in China before. Yahoo, for example, is providing information to the Chinese intelligence service that they use to round up, torture, and kill dissidents. So in the case of Cuba, with Facebook, where they're able to see who your friends are, what your communications are, and have all that data handy. And if they have a Gmail account and a phone, they can also see where you're walking around and where you're geologic, um, geographically positioned in the island, that could be a very powerful tool for the intelligence services. And obviously, they can have uh, filters to prevent when you engage in a search. In the case of China, if you search in China Tiananmen Square, you don't learn anything about what happened in June 4th of 1989, because that's all filtered out. And I'm pretty sure the Cubans are also setting up those same type of uh, filtered systems inside the island. They just took a little longer to get there. So I don't know if that answers your question. Mm-hmm. I don't know how comfortable you are in uh, speculating a little bit. Um, quite agree that change in personnel uh, does not constitute a potential change in regime. But at some point, uh, you know, things change um, in, in more profound ways. So I'm wondering, what, what is the most likely scenario in your mind of how uh, a regime change can be triggered on the island. And I'll, I'll even give you one area mm-hmm. where, you, where you can comment. Uh, as, as, as you well know, some of the uh, Angola generation military, uh, for instance, um, uh, you know, made an effort at, at a certain point before they were decapitated you know, by the regime. So I'm wondering in particular the relationship of the two main institutions on the island uh, the Cuban Communist Party and the armed forces, whether any potential fissure between <clears throat> those two could be a precipitating factor in uh, ultimate regime change. Well, I, I would, um, and perhaps you have more information than I do, but I would disagree that, that those elements in the military actually were doing anything. I think that Fidel Castro had the perception that they could potentially do something in the future and be a danger in the future, and he eliminated them. 
And one of the individuals was General Ochoa, who was a general who was decisive in some important battles in South Africa. And one of the things that I'd heard, which I related earlier today, as a matter of fact, was that one of the things that brought about his demise was a joke over the phone. Uh, Fidel Castro had come out and was making a speech about this new cow that they were going to breed so that every Cuban would have a small miniature cow in their house that would provide milk and cheese and other things. And Ochoa, in a conversation with someone on the phone, replied, yes, I know about that special breed of cow. We call it a goat. And the other person <laughs> on the phone laughed, as many of you are, and the opinion of some is that that sealed his fate. His, he was doomed because he thought, because of his years of service to country and as being a true believer, that he had a right to an opinion. And that's a very dangerous thing in Cuba. Um, but to your point, what could bring about change? I think that the moments of change that we've seen, frankly, and if we look at Eastern Europe uh, and we look at places like Chile, South Africa, um, change of a regime can take place when there is international support and solidarity for democratic movements in the country, when voices inside, dissidents, are given an echo chamber abroad, um, I think the Reagan administration, it's not an accident that the openings in Eastern Europe took place after the years of the Reagan administration doing things like supporting the Solidarity Movement in Poland, um, working with the church when Pope John Paul II was in the pontificate, to show moral solidarity with the activists in Eastern Europe, especially Poland. That type of uh, open solidarity can precipitate change in Cuba. And the thing is to follow through. Paradoxically, the one country that the United States and Eastern Europe had the best relations with um, and got a presidential visit was the only country that had delayed, bloody, and violent change, and that was Romania. If you look at the rest of Eastern Europe, where there was that clear moral clarity by the United States in not having presidential visits, you had democratic transitions that were relatively bloodless. Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, etc. Romania, where Richard Nixon visited and where the U.S. had a bipartisan consensus of engaging with Nicolas Ceausescu, is where you had a bloody end to the regime. And Ceausescu was executed, but the communists still remained in control there for some years before eventually having that transition take place. Um, so I think, yes, yeah, supporting the nonviolent actors breaking the information monopoly of the regime so the people on the ground can get access to uncensored information are key elements towards having a positive democratic transition. Thank you very much for your lecture today. Um, I, had a, I had a question about your thoughts on tourism in to Cuba. I've heard arguments both for and against, you know, that it's supporting the current um, regime versus, you know, supporting people who are trying to um, make a better life for themselves in Cuba. What are your thoughts about people traveling there as a destination? Well, as I began the lecture, uh, it's complicated. <laughs> the Cuban military armed forces and the intelligence service are the owners of the tourism industry in Cuba and their travel agency with a front company called Gaviota, which is part of a conglomerate called the Armed Forces Business Enterprises Group, or GAESA, 
in Spanish, um, that is headed by Raul Castro's son-in-law, General Luis Alberto Rodriguez. So on the odds, if you're going to Varadero Beach, to a very nice hotel, relatively speaking, because what they call a five-star hotel in Cuba is not a five-star hotel anywhere else, uh, maybe two and a half if you're lucky. But that money is going to the most repressive elements of the Castro regime, the military and the intelligence apparatus. And that money is going to help put the boot on the necks of the Venezuelan people today. So I would not recommend it. Now, if you're looking to go to Cuba and visit a parish and stay at someone's home that you know, that isn't somebody connected with the nomenclatura, um, yes, you're gonna, they're going to get some money with a plane ticket, but you can, I think, do more good than harm in terms of reaching out people to people for real and also working at a local parish and, and helping a community which is much in need. John, I want to take the last question. Um, during the uh, Obama years, there was an expressed hope by the administration that commerce with Cuba would eventually lead to political opening, as it is in China. We know China is a democracy where everyone is free and expresses <laughs> their opinion as they would like. And we know it's a free market where if you're connected, you can make money. Um, has there ever been anything said or done by the Castro regime that indicates a commitment to free markets? The answer is very simple. No. Yeah. But <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to expound upon that because it's even – the Obama policy in Cuba is a failure even by their own agenda. Let me ask you this question. What do you think was the peak year of trade between Cuba and the United States during the Castro era? Throw out a year. Anyone? 1958. <laughs> no, well, I mean, during the Castro regime. Yeah. 2008, the last year of the Bush administration. It was over $700 million of trade. During the Obama administration, trade between Cuba and the United States declined. And it reached its lowest point following his December 2014 announcement of normalized relations. Uh, it went from $700 million to, I think, about $140, $150 million for the year. And you'll find it in the U.S. Chambers uh, of um, – not the U.S. Chambers. The Commerce Department keeps a chart of the, of the trade figures. President Trump has turned around some of those policies. And the, the Department of the Treasury now has come out saying that they're going to restrict trade if you're doing business with military and other such things. Guess what? Trade between Cuba and the United States last year, the first year, the, has gone up. The question is why? And my answer would be is that it's not economic interests that drive the regime buying U.S. products. It's political interest. With Obama, they knew they did not have to leverage by purchasing strategically from different states to purchase influence because they had somebody in the White House who was doing what they wanted. Now with President Trump, they don't have someone who's doing what they want, so they need to start again purchasing American products to generate lobbies in the states to go to Capitol Hill and also to lobby the executive branch. With one minute left, another quick question I'm sure you can answer. And forgive me if you, if you did answer it, I missed it, but has the Castro regime ever wanted the U.S. embargo lifted? They have always wanted it lifted. The issue is that it's not their top priority. And 
I think I mentioned it earlier, their top priority is maintaining power, spreading their revolution in the hemisphere, creating more Cubas, um, building coalitions around the world to advance their revolutionary communist agenda. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe in the early 90s, the response of the Cuban regime was to meet up in Sao Paulo with all the radical left-wing parties of the world and many terrorist groups and plot the retaking of, of communism worldwide. And one of the fruits of that was Venezuela. Join me in thanking John Suarez. Thank you for having me. The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and activities of the Acton Institute, visit our website at acton.org.